Hello and welcome to another edition of Wander with Andrew Wilcox. This is uh, our 11th episode of the show so far. I'm really excited that you're here. Hopefully you've been here from the start. Maybe you're just joining us. That's sweet as well. Uh, maybe if you are just joining us, give a listen to some of the past episodes because there's some really cool ones in there that I, I don't know, I got super excited about and hopefully you will too. This episode this week was a really, really fun conversation. And always it's a little intimidating but great to talk to somebody who actually does a podcast because um, it can be a really good flow to the conversation. But I always feel a little intimidated with working with somebody who already worked in the podcast forward uh, format, especially this guy, Jason Tetro. He is a researcher, scientist, author, science educator, podcast host, award-winning podcast host. He's got two books out, The Germ Code and The Germ Files. Plus, he has his podcast, as I mentioned, Super Awesome Science Show, or SAS. And I highly recommend, if you like listening to podcasts, if you like listening to this podcast, that you give his podcast a listen. It's really well done, really well produced, uh, not like this one, um, and, and fun to listen to. I will tell you before we get into the episode that there's two weird moments in the episode for me. One of them is a point where he goes, yeah, let's talk about this. You know about that, right? Everybody knows about that, kind of what he says. And I'm like, yes, I was lying. I had no idea what he was talking about. Anyway, I don't know if I know if I agreed to it, but I definitely didn't say no, I didn't know what that is. So... See if you notice that moment when listening to the podcast. Also, there is a moment in there where I try to quote lyrics to a song and I completely forget what the name of the song is. Not only did I do that, but I quoted the wrong song completely, or at least the wrong band completely. The band I was talking about was Young Galaxy. The song I was trying to think of the name of was Swing Your Heartache. And it has nothing really to do with what we were talking about. So just so you know, when you get to that point, that's what happened. I like to admit my mistakes. As I've said, this podcast is all about a journey. It's not necessarily about knowing all the answers. It's not necessarily about giving you all the answers. It's about having a conversation about the interesting things in this world, the crazy things going on, and how the future might be just a little bit different. Anyway, Jason Tetro, super awesome guy to talk to with a really cool podcast. Uh, just happened to lower his standards and come onto my podcast. Here he is. Welcome to Wander with Andrew Wilcox. I am... Uh trained as a scientist um, in microbiology and immunology and for a number of years I essentially just focused on doing that. Uh, I was studying infection prevention and control both in the body and also in the environment and that was a really really fascinating and, and fun experience uh, for a number of years and then in 2007 uh, I had the unique opportunity of being able to go on television, not just to talk about microbiology, but also to provide sort of an in-depth 
in-depth perspective on how germs relate to us. And it wasn't about the infection. It, you know, that was the first thing I said right off the bat is, I don't want this to be a scare tactic. I don't want this to be fear-mongering. I want us to take a really good look at microbes in general and realize that only a very small percentage of the microbial species that exist have any potential harm when it comes to you know, being on or inside of us. Uh, the rest of them are either harmless and even some of them are beneficial for us. Uh, and so at first it was uh, doing something on television where it was pre-taped and, and then it was shown. And then eventually that turned into uh, a live feed where I would be on television during the news at noon answering questions from the public. So that was sort of my introduction, if you will, by fire <laughs> in a way uh, to science communication. And that sort of developed into a number of different things as the years went by. So I developed a blog called Confessions of a Mercurial Microbiologist. Uh, and then eventually I had an opportunity to write a book with uh, Doubleday Canada, who are a part of Penguin Random House. Um, so in 2013, so this is six years after I had started, I managed to write uh, the germ code. Yep. Um, that was a really fun experience. Uh, and, and one of the things about science communication that we always talk about is how you know, we're trying to incorporate um, the, the human experience into science. And this book was so fascinating because we wrote it in the same style as you would see in a Woody Allen movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that may sound yeah. weird, but when you think about it, we've had a pretty dysfunctional relationship with microbes over the years. Absolutely. And so the idea of focusing on um, you know, resolving dysfunctional relationships was sort of a, an interesting tack that no one had really taken before. And so we put that together. Um, you know, I wrote everything cover to cover. Uh, I had a, an amazing editor, Tim Rostron. Uh, and when it came out, it did incredibly well. And I had the, um, the fortune of being able to um, increase my presence on television, in radio, and also uh, on stage going around the world talking about microbes. That essentially transferred sort of into the next stage, which was no longer just about, you know, me talking about something, you know, the old nature of things format. But now I'm offering you ideas as to how to incorporate microbes into your life. And that was the basis for the germ files, uh, which was a, a bestseller here in Canada. Um, the, I find it funny because during the book review process, uh, one of the uh, newspapers in America, the Washington Post, uh, actually uh, referred to it as a dating guide for germs, which <laughs> <laughs> I still think is probably the best uh, description of that particular book. That's funny. Well, we um, have—I mean, the way you say, it, like we've been uh, we've been treating germs fairly badly. Well, they've been working hard inside <laughs> us for so long to keep us going, right? Yeah, exactly. So when you think about it, you know, we've had this relationship whereby the germs are just doing their thing. And, and yeah, a couple of the species or 1,500 of, 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 happen to have some interest in us. 
whereas we've been looking at them as all being very, very bad. And as a result, you know, we want to banish them. We want to get rid of them, germophobia, uh, overcleaning, all of these types of things are happening when in fact, you know, for the most part, it's not really necessary. And I know that some people are probably going to draw relationships to current events when it comes to uh, acceptance and bad apples. Uh, but it really does give you a perspective of, of how culture exists. Um, and, and the more that you accept, the more that you realize that there is less harm and more good, you can become more accepting of that. And I think that's really where the two books sort of fit into how we vision ourselves in this world. We are only a fraction of the cellular population. You know, we're 37 trillion cells. Yeah. Uh, microbes, including the viruses, uh, can be upwards of double that. And yet we're trying to get, you know, we're trying to eliminate them. We're trying to get rid of them. It's, it just doesn't make sense. So that, that really is sort of where I came from. Uh, and eventually over the years, um, since the books have come out, I've become a bit more of a, of a science communicator mm -hmm. in general, uh, to, to which uh, one of the joking things is that, you know, my nickname is the germ guy. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, people think about the germs as microbes. But now that uh, I've been sort of talking about science in general, that germ is really more like a seed. I'm sort of creating mm -hmm. seeds of knowledge, seeds of interest, and at times seeds of controversy. But, you know, that's <laughs> kind of what you have to do when you're talking about science. You got to stir it up a little. Well, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, that was leads to where you are now working on the SAS podcast, the yeah. uh, super awesome, sorry, super awesome science show, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and the goal of what I've seen in, in your episodes so far seems to be exactly that is, is planting the seeds of critical thinking, which is what this podcast is about as well. Uh, so that you look at things in different ways, which is what you did originally with germs. So it seems like a bit of a natural progression for you. Um, what, what would be the sizzle reel, uh, from the books that you would give people, uh, just a couple of things that really seem to surprise people um, to get them intrigued in the book without giving everything away. Because we do want them to read your books, man. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it was one of the, uh, when I give keynotes, I like to give keynotes in a way that gets people to think about something in those first five minutes. You got to mm. hook them, right? Yep. Otherwise, in the next 45 yep. minutes, you got people sleeping. Uh, and one of the things that I like to do is I get up there and I'm going to be talking about germs and I'm going to do this and everything. However, there is one thing I do need you to understand. There was a day I had long hair. There was <laughs> a day that I spoke in a very different language. But there was one thing that I kept from that. And that happens to be, we are not at war. And if you want to know what the books are about, it's basically, we are not at war. And I want you to learn how to love the microbes. Fair enough. Uh, one thing I've kind of seen is, is there has been more conversation about these microbes and what that does to our body, how that relates to our digestive system. Um, is this, is this a, a scientific area that is, uh, you know, rather new or is this, is this been 
worked through pretty well, and we, we have a fairly good knowledge of the effects of, of microbes on our digestive system. Oh, dear Lord, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are still learning. Now, I say that as also the co-editor of a very large tome called the Human Microbiome Handbook. Mm. So there has been a lot of research already done. And the microbes are not just affecting our digestive system. They're affecting our entire body, our metabolic system, our immune system, our brains, all of these things. But what you have to realize is that we're still in the infancy of this. You know, we've only been looking at the influence of the microbiome on our bodies uh, for about just over a decade now. Um, and you think about some of the other things that we've studied over the years and you realize, yeah, we're just getting started. So we've learned a lot and we can definitely offer uh, some excellent understanding and in some case, some excellent advice. But I have a feeling that we still haven't even touched the surface of how microbes can be involved in our health. And I do get into that a little bit in, uh, in the books. The idea that the future of our health, the future of medicine is probably going to be incorporating microbes more. We're already seeing this. Uh, how many times have you heard about the idea of using a virus to kill cancer mm -hmm. and to help people go into remission? Uh, we, we are seeing the idea of using probiotics to be able to help people who have uh, mental health issues. So that's the psychobiotics. So we're getting there. We're starting to see more and more of how this is happening. But the one thing that I really am excited about as we move forward is that microbes are really small. And as a result, they have very small uh, amounts of genetic material compared to, say, humans. And we can alter that. We can <laughs> modify that. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, actually. And Yeah. Uh, that would seem, though, but, I mean, you say it with uh, quite a bit of interest, but that would seem like an area that a lot of people would find a little bit frightening. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I totally get that. Until you tell people that the reason we have so much insulin in the world right now is because of a bacterium. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the reason that we are capable of being able to mass produce many of the chemicals that we currently have in medicine are because of microbes. Oh, and don't forget those antibiotics that we have. Yeah, they came from fungi, which are, my, uh, which are microbes. Um, have you ever heard of statins? No. Statins are medications that help people with uh, high blood pressure, hmm. uh, with other cardiovascular risks. Statins came from fungi, which are microbes. So the fact is, is that microbes have already contributed quite a bit to our modern medicine. Um, now what we can do is we can work with the microbes through genetic engineering to be able to get them to do the things that we need them to do to help us. Just imagine if you could have a probiotic that's going to be pumping all sorts of really good chemicals, vitamins, minerals, whatever it may be, into your body so that they can be better utilized by your metabolic system. These are the types of things that we're looking at. And over time, what will happen is we'll start to see this happening in the lab. The test will then go into animal systems and then eventually into clinical trials. I think there's though like there's that Hollywood fear of like genetically engineered whatever getting out of control turning into the virus we got 28 days okay. later or Soylent Green one of the two that they're feeding us something that we think is is something else 
I think that's where a lot of people's fear comes in. How do we, how do we mitigate that? How do we educate that to people? Well, we're actually already seeing that right now. Um, the current uh, no GMO movement mm-hmm. is really uh, giving us an understanding of how we're going to be able to approach this in the future. Um, you know, you've got people who are really against eating salmon or really against eating apples simply because they've been genetically, genetically engineered. engineered. So the idea is getting a feel for what the public is looking for and then finding ways to be able to harmonize with the public. I mean, that's one of the tenets of any kind of science communication. I think as we move forward by introducing science into our daily lifestyles, we're going to have to do the same thing. I, I'm, I was just recently talking to a friend of mine who took an agriculture course, and his had a lot to do with genetic modification. And I think, uh, and he was talking to me about the complete misunderstanding of, of GMOs and how that relates to our food source and how most, uh, and many farmers are all for it because it's going to yield better crops, cleaner crops, easier to produce, easier to, to yield and such. Um, the one thing that does scare me of that is the ownership, though, of genetics. Is that something that, is, that we should be worrying about? Well, this has been something that's been ongoing in terms of, uh, you know, not not just philosophical, but even legal battles. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you probably remember from many, many years ago, the idea that uh, a number of researchers came up with a mouse and they tried to patent a mouse. Yeah. Uh, It's one of those things where we're going to have to have these conversations. And it's better that we have those conversations as opposed to seeing what we saw in China where some uh, researcher decided to forge a whole bunch of documents, as it seems, or allegedly, uh, and then created a couple of CRISPR babies, which, by the way, did not work. Mm. So these poor individuals are now going to have to live their lives not really knowing whether or not those changes are going to have an impact on their lives. Well, and I thought there was some more recent science coming out uh, out of China about similar ideas of genetic engineering of, of kids. Uh, maybe yeah, I'm wrong I on mean, that. But once again, maybe that's just internet talk. That was just in your podcast. All of the pseudoscience that we're now exposed to when it comes to the internet, it becomes a lot harder for people to wade through stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think right now what's happening is we are being subjected to a flood of different types of information. And it's really difficult to be able to figure out which one is you know, trustworthy, which one is believable. And then amongst the scientists themselves, there are arguments, there are debates. I just recently wrote an article uh, showing that you know, there's a chemical that's involved in uh, the destabilization of the polar vortex that leads to those cold weather bitters, mm-hmm. those, those bitter cold snaps. And I've got other scientists saying, no, that's not really the case. There are other factors involved. Everybody is going to have sort of their own version of what the science is really saying. And it's going to be incredibly difficult for people who are not in that field to judge one way or the other. And unfortunately, what that ends up doing is it dilutes the trust in science altogether. That, that, that really is one of the problems. And we've been seeing this for centuries the whole idea of scientific communities separating themselves from the public was essentially to allow them to be able to have these conversations in private so that they can deter- determine what is the best way to move forward, what is the best actions 
to what is the best science. And now it just seems like this is happening in the open world, yeah. thanks to social media. So where is science going to be, say, five years from now with the way things are, are, are being shared, the way that things are being debated in such an open forum? It, it's going to be tough. But that shouldn't stop us from being able to continue to share and, and, and communicate science and let people realize that there are going to be debates no matter where you go. It's not just limited to politics. Well, I think we're in a position where we have to, we have to educate people. We have to educate all individuals in order to be critical thinkers because it's not like we can turn back the clock on access, I think, right? Like we can't. <laughs> wipe the internet away and just say, well, we can't put the science, any science on the internet until it's been bested by 95% of the scientific community or something like that. We have to yeah. be able to have people to critically think on their own and, and wade through it in the best way possible. Oh, exactly. And I mean, when you think about it, when you have something like climate change and global warming, where the standard is 97% of all scientists agree, uh, why is it then such a controversial thing? Why are there still people who are fighting against it? it? It really doesn't matter how much of a consensus there is when it comes to the science. Mm -hmm. It has to have a consensus with the overall community, community. as well. well. And that's, again, that's not something that's limited to today. Well. We saw that way, way back with our good friend Galileo Galilei. Yeah. He went to jail. He was right. But, yeah. and, and, and the consensus was he was right. But he went to jail simply because it didn't match with what the uh, public wanted. Look at Darwin. Yep. He, he had all of this amazing information from his voyages of the Beagle. And he was loved, beloved, if you will, for all of his drawings and for sharing and all of that. But the minute that he came up with the idea of uh, evolution and, and survival of the fittest, it totally went against what the public believed. And as a result, he ended up being ridiculed. And it was, it was difficult for him in, in those latter years. Well, and one point that was brought up on one of your recent podcasts, which I think is really important, is the lack of absolutes in science and the language of science. It seems like in the language of science, anybody who is, is, a, is a real scientist will speak in a way that Things are certain, but there's always room for there to be something different. Whereas then the people, the scientists who are probably not the most legitimate, who are willing to speak in absolutes because it's going to get them success, fame, money, whatever, they seem to be heard uh, the easiest by some and the loudest. I, I don't know if there's a solution to that problem. Well, I mean, there is a solution. And, and that really comes down to the fact that uh, everything that is around us is ruled by the laws of thermodynamics. So mm -hmm. if we can bring it down to a mechanism so that we know exactly what is happening at a mechanistic level and we can identify it, follow it, see it, then we can be pretty certain that that's actually what's happening. It's very difficult to be able to do that, though, in every single situation. So as a result, until we have that you know, definitive knowledge of how exactly something is happening, then there's always going to be this room for debate. And then you take it to an open forum and all of a sudden people who may not have as rich of a knowledge start to wonder, should I take sides? Is this really correct? Et cetera, et cetera. So 
as we sort of move forward, we really do have to start thinking about the idea that since we know nothing is absolute science, then we have to be sure that when people are watching or reading or listening to what we're saying, that they also understand that this is a perfectly normal process that mm-hmm. happens as opposed to, well, you've got the red team and the blue team, if you will. Yeah. And then all of a sudden a bunch of people believe the earth is flat again. <laughs> well, I think we've all pretty much figured out that the that the earth is not flat. So I think that's one of the few things we can be sure about. <laughs> well, but we, I was just, this happened like a two years ago. I got added to a Facebook group of over a hundred thousand people that believed the earth was flat. I can't, yeah. I can't believe that. I can't even fathom that. The number of things that would have to be lies and deceits on all of us for that to be true and yet we all are living a lie is just impossible, but some people believe it and they find enough quote-unquote science online in order to back that idea. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's one of those things where they won't even believe what their eyes are telling them mm-hmm. because... Uh, millions of people were following that Tesla Roadster when it went up into space last year. And as it was circumnavigating the globe, you could actually see that it was round. (laughs) And yet these people are just simply, oh, no, no, that's not the case. But what are you going to do? But they also, I mean, with the increase in technology, the ability we have to make things that look fake or make things that are fake that look so real... Uh, it makes those arguments easier to do, doesn't it? Well, yeah. But I mean, even in 1969, uh, we had those people essentially saying that uh, uh, the man on the moon was actually a Hollywood studio. Kubrick's Kubrick's (laughs) in there making the greatest film of his life that nobody will ever know. Yeah, exactly. So you're always going to have these types of influences. And sometimes I just wonder if they're doing it simply because, you know, that they just they just want to have a lark at it, um, but there are people who are going to be very forceful in submitting and and, and justifying and defending their own views. I, I'm okay with them wanting to do that, but as long as we have the ability to counter that in that open forum, provide the information, provide the details that are necessary so that the public understand that, yeah, the world is not flat, it really is round, then I don't think that there's all that big of a deal. That being said, there's not a heck of a lot of problems dealing with someone who thinks the earth is flat. Mm -hmm. We have other problems when it comes to people believing something that's not true based on propaganda and the attempt to destabilize uh just good old-fashioned medicine yeah and that leads us to one that i you know don't want to spend a ton of time on but we we did kind of touch on this before the podcast oh, it was vaccines which is a yeah. bigger example of exactly what we just talked about yeah um it, which has actual public health uh you know consequences or possible consequences if it gets big enough and it's bigger than it's been in a long time and that's due to access to misinformation it's pretty much known that not only do they work, they have been responsible for helping us to eliminate some of those pathogens that really do 
try and kill us. Uh, smallpox has been completely eradicated. We had at one point been able to eliminate measles in most parts of the world. So vaccines definitely have the ability to help. Now, there's something that happens in the, the human population that I find so interesting. And this has been talked about not just by uh, you know, researchers, but also from philosophers on down. And that is, in times of calm, the voices of dissent get louder. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is that there is a small community of people who may not like vaccines. They may think they're not worked. They may think they're full of toxins. They may think that they cause things like autism. And all of this has been disproven. All of this has actually shown to be not true. However, we also live in a world where we're not completely surrounded by smallpox or measles or polio. And so as a result, when you have a calm environment, these voices of dissent get a much larger share of the volume. As that happens, they start to spread their word and more people begin to believe. And as that happens, and we're seeing this right now, we start to see vaccination rates drop. And then some of those bugs, which we thought we had gotten rid of, end up starting to come back. And this is what we're seeing with measles at the moment. We're also seeing a huge push now from public health officials and from others who essentially don't want their kids to, you know, get sick, essentially saying, look, you can't listen to these people. Yeah. These are the facts. This is the reality of the situation. The problem is, is that it's great that we're doing it now, but we're 10 years too late. We should have been taking care of that business 10 years ago when those dissenters started really gaining some traction in their voice. Unfortunately, very few people took them seriously. And now that it's become one of these uh, global health threats, the World Health Organization has actually called it a major threat to global health. We have to do something about it. So I think in that sense, what you have to realize is that while the voices of dissent are always going to be there, it is our prerogative to be sure that we are continually making sure that they stay in the very, very small minority, their echo chambers, if you will, and not given the opportunity to spread. <clears throat> and would you and as a, well, I'm just going to say, yeah. and, uh, and, and, the, and the presence of social media has given them that ability to augment and amplify their message in a way that I don't think very many people were prepared for. So not only are we behind, but we've also lost exponential amounts of influence simply as a result of Twitter, Facebook, and all these other uh, platforms. And I would say I think that's a problem uh, all over this sort of uh, – just the, the speed in which technology is moving forward, society doesn't have the ability to adapt at it. I think – would you agree that's the truth? Well, it's a funny thing. And again, I'm going to go back a bit to philosophy here. Um, one of the greatest tenets that we care about is democratization. 
we want to have equal voice, equal representation, equal ability to live, equal rights, all of these things, right? Equal, 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 equal. And that's wonderful. However, what that also means is that people who are against the common flow of society also should be treated as equals. And that has been persisting since the Clinton era. And now we're at a point where we've realized, oh, wait a second here. Maybe there aren't voices who should be given equal standing. Maybe there aren't voices who should be given the benefit of democratization. But we have allowed ourselves to get into that realm where everybody has an equal voice. And so how are you now going to be able to differentiate between those who truly have um, an expertise or an understanding that can be useful and those who are simply trying to play a game or troll their way to get you to make a decision that is antagonistic to your health or to society in general. Well, and we know that in history, I mean, a lot of times dissenting voices have been the voices that we've needed the most, that have pushed for change that was necessary and has moved society forward. I think there is a natural uh, need for those types of dissenting voices to exist. But now we have all sorts of (laughs) dissenting voices coming from all over the place. And the idea of complete freedom is becoming a a a bigger, larger, more nuanced, tougher discussion because we've got to go and go, no, but we, we want to, we want free speech, but we, we do need to have hate speech laws, you know, like we do need to have, uh, these abilities, uh, to, you know, you know, we, I, I, there's a great band called, uh, um, young galaxy and they have a song, um, where they talk about, um, how word, I can't remember the exact line, but the, the, the thing is that uh, essentially that words do matter, that they can hurt, that if, if, if they don't have the ability to, to affect things, then they don't have a purpose. So we have to accept that, it, you know, words have power. Uh, conversation has power. What we're doing right now has power to hopefully, you know, make people think, affect change. So uh, we can't, you know, f- complete uh, freedom of, of anything, we have to have a conversation about that, but that's a tough and nuanced conversation. No, I totally agree with you. Um, Freedom of expression is something that even I hold incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I also hold very valuable is the idea that there are certain things that upon which we should have limits. Uh, Honestly, the people who are spreading things like anti-vaccine, um, anti-climate change, all these things, they have a full right to be able mm-hmm. to express their views. Okay? What I don't find acceptable is when it goes away from the topic and onto the person. Yeah. So when attacks become personal, or as we like to say nowadays, ad hominem, mm-hmm then what's happening is that you're no longer trying to focus on the discussion of a particular topic. You're now going after another person and you're attacking that person. And we all know about Godwin's rule, which of course Godwin's law. So it can eventually descend into that type of chaos. I feel that 
if there comes a point where you are in a discussion about any kind of thing, whether it be scientific, political, economic, whatever, and the conversation changes from debate to attacks on an individual, I think at that point, that's where you really need to cut it off and essentially say, okay, you're going into territory that shouldn't be done. We, we shouldn't be discussing in this realm. And as a result of that, there should be a shutdown of whatever is being said. Unfortunately, trying to figure out what that line is, it's, it's a challenge. And we're seeing that challenge right now when you're talking about Facebook or Twitter. At what point can you report somebody because they've done something that you feel may be out of line but maybe to Twitter or to Facebook is still considered to be freedom of expression. So there's a long debate that we're going to be having. I don't believe that we're going to have full consensus. Yeah, uh, I think so. and, and in a way, it almost seems like freedom of expression, like science, is not going to have very many absolutes. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I think that's, uh, that's going to be a conversation that lasts uh, for a very long time. And you're never ever going to have everybody agree with it. And I think there's positives to that. And that's how a society can question themselves. I think you even mentioned it earlier on when you talked of, you know, we weren't listening to these voices early enough. Uh, and now we can't stop hearing them. It seems most of the time yeah. the voices that we're hearing are the people on the extreme ends of every idea when most people are just in the middle trying to figure out how to feed their kids and make sure their kids don't uh, get a disease. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was funny. I was having a, uh, an, I was being interviewed for a radio program, and it turns out that the mayor of a large city happened to be the host that particular day. Oh, wow. He had previously been a radio host. And when we had a discussion about one of these issues, I made it very clear that when it comes to the mass spreading of misinformation, false information, propaganda, it really is the scientific community's fault for not seeing that and heading it off when it had a chance a decade ago. And his response was, I never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. I've never even heard it put that way. But when you think about it, if we had silenced the critics who, who had no basis in anything back then, then we would not have had this problem today. And so we now have to double, triple, quadruple our efforts just to be able to catch up. So in that sense, even though we may be having this discussion over what freedom of expression happens to be, should you find yourself in a position where people are trying to um, spread misinformation and, and, and use propaganda, you can still use your voice to be able to defend and not, no, I won't even say defend to correct, to make sure that what is true, even though it may not be absolute, is still out there so that there's at least that voice that counters them. Yeah, and definitely when you go on a, on a format such as Twitter or Facebook, you know, there is definitely those voices that get in there, but I still see the problem of siloing there. I still see the problem of you go to a conservative commentator uh, 
a super conservative, ultra conservative commentator. Most of the people responding underneath them are going to be super conservative, and those giving uh, the other side are going to be smaller. Uh, same on the other side. You get an ultra uh, a progressive person and everybody underneath them is sort of agreeing with them. And then some people are dissenting, but those people are getting a, a pretty tough go at it a lot of times. I don't know what the solution for fixing that problem is. Well, I find it kind of like, have you ever actually watched Fox News? Yes. Yeah. Have I you do. ever noticed that they always have the token Democrat? Yep. <laughs> you know, Juan Williams was always great. He was always the yeah. best token Democrat for anything on Fox News. So you have your panel, four or five people, and then you've got the ultra, ultra hard conservative. You've got the ultra conservative. You've got the kind of hard conservative. And then you got Juan. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what they're doing is they're saying we're fair and balanced. But really what they're doing is it's 75 percent what they want to hear and 25% of some guy going, Hey, hey you can't really do yeah. that. No, that's not true. And that. But that voice gets drowned out. So echo chambers are going to exist. And the minute that they say that they're being fair and balanced because they've got the token voice in there, well, you know, that's not really fair and balanced. That's just simply fair to their views. But I, would, gonna... say, I would say though, CNN does the same thing. I think they all do the same thing to an extent. Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at something like a CNN, what they're doing is they're taking the most prominent names in the right-wing conservative world mm. and giving them a stage as the token voice. So really what's happening in this particular case is that they're trying to draw attention to their segments by featuring somebody who's very well-known, very well-recognized. Um uh, that is a totally different approach than what the Fox does. Mm -hmm. But by the same respect, you are correct. It's definitely swaying towards one particular mindset and trying to offer the other side a voice, but using somebody who's incredibly popular or incredibly controversial uh, to be able to ensure that, you know, there's there's going to be lots of screaming. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's, that's what yeah. it comes down to. That's what disgusts me most about some of the Fox programs, especially uh, one guy that's been in the news a lot, Tucker Carlson. Uh, he finds the craziest of the crazy progressive people. He finds the woman that says babies shouldn't be called boys or girls; they should just be called babies, and they get to pick their own names. And then he peddles it as though this is what the whole. Uh, anybody progressive believes. I find that he's one of the worst offenders for finding the craziest of the crazy and putting them up as this is what the other side believes. I totally agree with you with that. Um, sometimes I actually enjoy going on right wing radio or, or television. Mm -hmm. because I always enjoy seeing where they're coming from, what their perspective is, how they're framing the argument, and then in real time, figuring out how you can use the science to make them feel like you're working with them and then hitting them hard with something that makes them realize, no, <laughs> you're yeah, not yeah. right at all. You're not right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I had one example. Uh, I was on a right wing station uh, and we were going to be talking about the Zika virus. And this person, for some reason, thought that the Zika virus was a hoax that it was some way to be able to convince women to have abortions. 
it, it was just, it was uh, so incredibly wild that I was just sitting there listening, going, I have no idea where any of this is coming from, but okay, I'll play along. And then I asked him, happened to know New Jersey? Yeah. Do you happen to, would you happen to have been there when Sandy hit? Yeah. Did you see what it did to the New Jersey boardwalk? It just totally destroyed it. You had roller coasters in the ocean. It was just a complete and utter mess. He's like, I know. I said, that's what Zika does to babies' brains. Wow. And at that point, he didn't know what to do. Yeah. And, at that, and then I said, so why aren't we focusing on maternal health? Why aren't we focusing on making sure that women have the right immune system to be able to fight this? Why aren't we making sure that babies are being looked at on a regular basis to be sure that their development process is happening? So you never have to worry about an abortion because you know that there's always going to be a safe birth. No, we'll be right back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. that's a great response. That's an absolutely incredible response. So at the end of the day, even if you happen to be within this echo chamber, you do have an opportunity to be able to change the flow of the discussion, to change the topic, to, to, to make sure that what you stand for can still be there without having to worry too much about whatever they're spewing. It's not easy. It takes lots of time and lots of practice, but it can be done. Well, and I think it's a vital thing for all of us to do when it comes to um, making sure that we get out of those silos, that we get in into, you know, we present other ideas, that we actually have a dialogue. And it makes us each one of us stronger in our views, hopefully, and in our ability to defend them if yeah. you take those actions. Yeah, I, I think that's really what we need to do. Yes, it's going to take time. Yes, there are going to be people who simply do not want to be taking part in this. But at the end of the day, like I said, we came in 10 years late and now we're having to make up for it. Maybe we should take this as a learning opportunity to realize that whether we're talking about loving germs during our dysfunctional relationship with them, whether we're talking about vaccines, whether we're talking about pseudoscience, at the end of the day, it's up to every single person who happens to be on the side of science, if you will, mm -hmm. to decide whether or not they really want to be getting involved in this. And if not, then how are you going to deal with the consequences at dinner, especially Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> when Cousin Eddie is talking about all these lovely right-wing conspiracy theories and, that are anti-science and you somehow have to figure out how to deal with that? I'm not saying, man, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, watch the video, watch the video. And you're like, no. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, just, it, the video, man. I'm like, yes, you can make a video that'll say pretty much anything and it'll make it look compelling and they'll say a bunch of big words and numbers and it'll so kind of sound like it fits, but it, it, it isn't the reality. Uh, um, I, I, one person even said to me, you know, you have to just watch this video and you'll understand everything. <laughs> so I figured, ah, oh, what the heck, why yeah. not? So watched a little bit of video and I picked a particular time point and I said, thank you so much because it just proved everything I've been saying. Because if you listen to him saying this at this exact moment in time, he says this, which is exactly what I've been saying the whole time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they don't know what to do. Um, just to, as we're getting cl uh, close to the end of our time here, 
Um, one thing that I, I know um, that I found as a kid, we, I grew up on a farm in Alberta. We did everything. You ran outside half the day. You ate dirt. You fell in everything. <laughs> uh, you, you went into the cattle fields. You stepped in all of it. You, you probably accidentally ate all of it in some way, shape, or form. Um, and you came out of it okay. And then there was, it seems to be a, a really, really big push to use as much hand sanitizer as humanly possible for like five years in the early to mid 2000s. And then we've seemed to have sort of moved away from that. Is there, are we now having a, a, a movement to more of an understanding that we need to expose ourselves to uh, a little bit more of nature? Um, is there a direct link? Uh, to you know the development of increased amounts of of um, asthma and food allergies and stuff to not doing those types of things and is that can we fix that by just getting outside more or not using hand sanitizer all the time yeah uh to be honest with you that that's essentially what the research is finally showing us it's interesting that when we grow up we need exposure to microbes, mm-hmm. we need exposure to different types of chemicals, because that helps to train our immune system. When we start to lose the ability to have those exposures, then we risk the chance for uh, the, these immune issues like asthma, atopies, uh, uh, allergies, that type of thing. I think where the real problem, though, that came in happened when we started thinking about microbes as infectious agents Mm -hmm. versus microbes as immune balancers. And it took some time, but there have been some really good research studies that have shown that an increase in diversity of exposure to a wide variety of microbes after six months of age definitely does seem to help to balance that immune system and make it more ready for the future. Does that mean that you should go outside, play in the park, and eat the dirt? If it's not a dog park, why not? (laughs) But if you also happen to be going out to farms, that's going to help. If you're going out into grand expanses of open space, that helps. Now, in terms of hand sanitizers, anything to do with disinfection, antisepsis, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I have hand sanitizer with me everywhere I go. I don't use it everywhere I go. I only use it in instances where I know that there's been a contamination of my hands. If, however, I happen to be in an African savanna, or as I've been in the past, the Amazon jungle, I don't have hand sanitizer with me because there's one thing in those places that isn't in an urban environment. You don't have lots of people. Mm -hmm. So when you think about it, the reason that we need that hand sanitizer, the reason that we need those disinfectants and antisepsis isn't as a result of the microbes. It's as a result of human population density. Darn people. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and and there, was a, there was a great study that was being done uh, in, in the United States. They had this perfectly fresh building, and they were going to watch the microbiome of the building, right? 
because they wanted to find the microbiome of the built environment. So find out how this could be affecting the ability of patients to heal. Could this be leading to all sorts of infections? And what did they find? Nothing really happened until humans came in and mm. then everything just went to hack. <laughs> <laughs> so think about it from this perspective. What is the germiest place in your home? Bathroom? Some will say bathroom. Some will say kitchen sponge. I was going to say kitchen was next, yeah. Yeah. Some, will pu- some people will actually say the remote control. The answer is you. You're the germiest Gross. thing. So when you think of it from that perspective, then you go outside, you go to the mall, you go to the airport, you go anywhere. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of other people. And you have no idea what their microbes are. You have no yeah. idea what their uh, contamination profile is. How are you going to know how many of them have something that could potentially harm you? You don't. You know what the grossest place, the grossest thing in your house is? Your partner and your kids. (laughs) I I have had friends who have written to me saying that their kids are petri plates. Yeah, yeah. I have a coworker that it seems like every time one of the kids gets sick because they send them to the daycare, and then that that the daycares to me just seem like a breeding ground of all diseases. And then they come home, one of them's sick, then all of a sudden the other one's sick, then parent, both parents are sick, and it, then it comes into our offices. I, I'm scared of daycares, man. Maybe that's the grossest place. Well, that's the other thing is that when, I, when we talk about daycares, I have parents essentially coming up to me saying, you know, my kid is always sick. I don't know what's going on. Well, if you're not getting out to the farms, you're not getting out to the pastures and everything, you're going to have exposure anyways, right? Mm-hmm. So the kids are going to get exposure to other kids and they're going to be sharing their germs with everybody else. And that potentially could lead to infections. Now, some of the time it really is an infection, like adenoviruses, rotaviruses, these types of things. But you may also have just regular exposures that could potentially lead to, you know, inflammation or immune activation that leads to symptomology. I mean, those types of things do happen. So what I essentially say is that the, the, the kids, yes, are sick, but they're getting sick, and that's going to help them to be able to have a better and healthier immune system when they get older so that when they see these again, they're going to be able to resist them. Usually, I don't get invited to parties anymore by these parents, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you're going to have to start – your immune system has to start somewhere. Yeah. And so if you can give your kids that opportunity to have that wider diversity and exposure, then that's great. And if not, they're going to get it in. Okay. Uh, so I got one last thing that I do every, every show to wrap everything up. It's called read, watch, and listen. Because I want to encourage people to read, watch, and listen. So all I ask you is something that people should read, something they should watch, and something they should listen to. And I first off definitely recommend reading your books and listening to your podcast. But for you, uh, what would you recommend people read so when it comes to reading what i like to do is read something a little bit outside of the box and and there is um, an incredibly cool book Uh, have you ever heard of something called pcr no okay it's called polymerase chain reaction and it actually helped to completely change the world And it was written by, uh, sorry, and PCR now is essentially 
one of the biggest tools that we use, and it's pretty much in every kind of biological science. Well, this was invented by someone known as Kerry Mullis. And a number of years ago, he wrote a book called Dancing Naked in the Mind Field. And it is quite possibly one of the best books that you can ever read because it gives you not just story, but it also gives you perspective on not just the fact that the stereotype of the scientist is probably incorrect, but that sometimes having a little bit of madness or, in my case, mercurial nature <laughs> is actually an incredibly good thing. Fair enough. And watch. Now, as for watching, okay, there's something that I, I want people to realize, and that is there is so much that happens in science that is very difficult to translate to what we see in our regular universe. And when we try and do that, <laughs> sometimes it comes across as relatively boring. However, there is a TV show ironically, on Fox, <laughs> called The Resident. The Resident. And the executive producer, Amy Holden Jones, is an incredibly interesting person herself. But what she has done is she has brought in the experts in certain fields to help write the episodes. And numerous times... I've been watching an episode and I'll realize that this was this study in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I'll simply reach out to her and I said, Amy, is this this particular paper? And yeah, it is. And wow. in fact, they reached out to the person who wrote that paper to help make sure that the episode was correct. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it's called The Resident. It's on Fox. And yes, it is fiction. But there's a lot that's based in regular science, wow. and it'll give you a perspective on how science communication is changing so that not only is it now just simply something that you watch on the nature channels, but eventually it's going to be something that you'll be able to see in Hollywood as well. Cool. And listen. So in terms of listening, I know this is going to sound really crazy, but... <laughs> What you need to listen to over and over and over and over again is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. All right. The first movement. Because honestly, that is science. You start off with a big bang hypothesis. Da -da -da -da. You've got an idea. And then you slowly start figuring out how you're going to make this idea work as you're moving up. And there's this crescendo and this crescendo. And then you come up with the experimental plan. Da -da -da -da. And then you go through it. And eventually, as you're getting to the end of the movement, you're getting your results, you're getting your understanding. And then you realize, I've got something that's going to make a difference. And so at the end of the movement, what you realize is that, yes, you've made a difference You've done something that's going to be meaningful. And now you just have to share the whole process. And quite honestly, it's a heck of a lot better to listen to that than to read some of the papers in the scientific literature. <laughs> Although I still think people should be reading the scientific literature. I agree with that as well. Uh, but, you know, it's always great to start somewhere. And I think that's a great place to start. Thank you so much, Jason, for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. So thanks for being on the show. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, I hope everyone who's been listening 
realizes that I see science not just simply as a vocation. It's also a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. And if you get a second to everybody listening, check out the SAS podcast, super awesome science show and the germ code and the germ files and your website as well, because there's even more there for everybody to check out. Once again, thank you, Jason. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.